Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a large variety of genres. And you can play them on any device that you have in your hand, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here is a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, the essay collection by the late, great David Foster Wallace. Or how about Game Change, Obama and the Clintons, McCain and Palin, and The Race of a Lifetime by Mark Halperin and John Heileman? Or what about Born Standing Up, A Comics Life, the memoir by Steve Martin? Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few dollars. It's a great thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know? It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People program. This is writers talking like actual humans. This is the more social than social media encounter. Uh, My guest today is Joe Blair. He is a pipe fitter by trade, and he is uh, now the author of an unusually raw and honest memoir called By the Iowa Sea which is available now from Scribner, just released, uh, or it's imminent, depending on when you listen to this. Uh, The book is about the disintegration and rejuvenation of Joe's marriage. It is set against the backdrop of a biblical-type flood in Iowa City in the year 2008. Uh, You may remember that uh, when the river crested and much of the city was underwater. And uh, the book is also about Joe's struggles as the father of four children, including uh, a special needs child who is severely autistic. So this is a very beautiful book. Uh, it's very lyrical, and it is very unsparing in its commitment to honest self-examination to an unusual degree. Uh, it's a terrific book, and Joe and I are going to be talking about all of it in just a moment, and you don't want to miss it. So before I begin, I've got some things on the agenda to discuss. Uh, I'm recording this prior to the weekend, so when this episode goes live on Sunday, March the 4th, I will be in Chicago at AWP. I did decide to go last minute. 
Uh, booked my ticket a few days ago. I'm leaving on Friday, and I will be there in the Windy City for about 48 hours. So it'll be a quick trip, and I did make some cards, uh, some 4x6 cards that I'm going to be handing out to conference goers, to festival goers, uh, hoping to spread the word about other people and the nervous breakdown, etc. And otherwise, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. Uh, you know, and, and me being me, I booked the ticket to Chicago and I have no ticket to AWP, which is completely sold out, but I'm going anyway. And on a certain level, I kind of like that. You know, I like that I have to gate crash. Uh, it adds a level of intrigue and difficulty that could create some interesting situations. And, uh, overall, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be able to sneak in, you know, I'm not that worried about it. I'll find my way. And uh, if I get kicked out, uh, I get kicked out. And I'll simply wander the streets of Chicago and hand out flyers in the freezing cold to complete strangers. So, uh, I'm all, you know, I will be doing some sort of AWP wrap-up on a future episode of this show, uh, either on Wednesday with episode 50 or next Sunday with episode 51. Uh, speaking of which, it's hard to believe that this show has already hit the 50-episode mark. Uh, that, that's amazing. And uh, thank you to everyone uh, for showing such great support here in the early going and for spreading the word about the program. Uh, that is definitely what is making it happen. So thank you guys. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, the only other thing for AWP is that I, I will, uh, potentially be recording some stuff while I'm there on location, just like talking into my iPhone. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to shake out, but I'm going to give it a shot and we'll see what the process yields. And uh, if I do get some good material, I will try to share it here on the podcast. So, Otherwise, what is there to discuss? Uh, I want to discuss with uh, I want to discuss wanderlust, and I want to discuss the concept of freedom, uh, both of which are dealt with uh, very nicely in Joe Blair's memoir. You know, the desire to live a life unchained, to roam the land, to not conform, to somehow remain untethered and in transit, and to engage with the world at the level of poetry. Uh, to like to live a life worthy of the page, and to be the protagonist in your own epic road novel and, and how that almost never happens. You know, it doesn't happen for Joe who, who kind of began his adult life with his then girlfriend and now spouse on a motorcycle trip across the country. Uh, but then there was a pregnancy and then they were suddenly in Iowa and then they were suddenly domesticated and working for a living, which happens. And I think, you know, I think a lot of us start with these kinds of grand plans and uh, then end up in some sort of quote-unquote normal existence, uh, you know, like whatever that means, whether it's some sort of office job or some sort of domestic situation or some sort of small, uh, quaint, but ultimately suffocating college town or some sort of big city pressure-packed quagmire of pollution and class anxiety. And I think I had this kind of life in mind when I was young, uh, very similar to Joe. Like a, a life on the road, uh, except no motorcycle. Uh, I'm not good on a motorcycle, and uh, I'm not the kind of person who can uh, manage that kind of mechanical situation very easily. And I actually wrecked a scooter when I was a young kid. I, I ran into a tree and was knocked unconscious by the trunk of that tree. But much like Joe, uh, I felt like I would be best suited. Uh, you know, in my youth, I felt like I would be best suited to an unconventional existence. Uh, I like to travel quite a bit. I like road trips. And uh, I kind of wanted to roam the earth like Kane in Kung Fu. But, of course, that proved difficult without money uh, and without Kung Fu. And, of course, that's also uh, a much more difficult life than one tends to imagine. 
You know, it can be lonely to travel, especially when you're traveling solo and you're on a strict budget. Uh, and that should be said, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, travel is one of those things that always seems better in the rearview mirror, like much like, uh, like college parties, uh, and Saturday night live, you know, like you romanticize certain things for some reason. And, and, and what is it with Saturday night live? It's almost like, for me, it's almost always funnier when I'm retelling it. Like there's like a delayed reaction, uh, when it comes to Saturday night live humor, it takes like 24 to 36 hours, uh, before it's funny or before it like ripens into its full funniness. So anyway, uh, travel, wanderlust, a life on the edge, uh, makes me wonder if there are any writers out there who are actually living this life and making it happen and writing good books about it. You know, like Paul Thoreau, Gretel Ehrlich, Pico Ayer, William Volman, Sebastian Younger, Christiane Amanpour, uh, although she's not exactly a writer. And uh, speaking of Sebastian Younger, uh, I do like to joke that Sebastian Younger should have his own cologne. I think we're at that point. Uh, to me, he's such a manly writer. Uh, he used to own a bar, or maybe he still does own a bar. And uh, he writes about disasters and war. And uh, that's not a knock either. You know, I'm just saying that uh, the man projects a certain virility that I think is obvious to everyone. And uh, it's it's just like it's just a different energy than, uh, for instance, like Jonathan Saffron Four. You know, like, Sebastian Younger is is dangerous. He is brave. And he is going where other men do not dare to go. And what, what's great uh, about it is that the fragrance could be called Younger, which is sort of perfect marketing-wise because phonetically it sounds uh, like Younger as opposed to Older. And uh, men of a certain age could wear it and feel a bit more confident about their situation. It's like a bit more youthful and spry. Uh, they could take a Viagra and slap some Younger on their torso. And then venture off into the evening. And then, you know, I think it would smell kind of like pine needles and leather. And maybe some tobacco. Younger, the uh, the new fragrance for men of letters. <laughs> the new fragrance for men of a certain age and a certain uh, sophistication. So... I don't know. It would be sort of great if, uh, if like everyone and every writer in particular could have their own personal fragrance, you know, like I wonder what it would cost to get your own fragrance up on Amazon, just like you can, like with a book for the Kindle, you know, just outsource it to some third world, you know, third world country. Uh, they make it, they bottle it, they put a little label on it and then you use it to promote your books and supplement your income. So I guess, you know, uh, I would have to call mine Brad, <laughs> uh, which would be the worst selling cologne of all time. And, and for those of you who are familiar with this program, you know how I feel about my first name and the fact that it's a cultural signifier for douchebag in uh, mainstream cinema and television in particular. Um, but then again, maybe Brad would be the perfect name for a cologne. Like it would, maybe it would be like even better than Dracar Noir, which does have a certain ring to it. Just Dracar Noir. Uh, like it almost sounds like a, a new film genre or a new literary genre uh, where the protagonist is an insufferable douchebag. Like you tell you, like you tell your friend, like I'm working on a new novel. Oh really? Uh, what is it? Is it literary fiction? Uh, no, it's actually Dracar Noir. Anyway, uh, what am I talking about? 
I don't even know how I got here. I started off wanting to say something deep and meaningful about life and about the desire to travel and wander the earth and live an unconventional existence. And uh, here I am now talking about celebrity fragrances and uh, Dracar Noir. And that right there is my life in a nutshell. That is what is happening. And I'm not even really sure why. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. In, uh, in 2008, um, there was a flood in Iowa City, Cedar Rapids area. The Cedar, Rapids, Cedar River flooded and the Iowa River flooded. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, I don't know, a thousand blocks in Cedar Rapids were underwater. Um, we, we, our old neighborhood where we lived went underwater. Um, there was a lot of devastation. A lot of people were homeless because of it. Uh, during this time when the flood happened, my wife and I, uh, who have four children, one of whom is uh, autistic, pretty severely and profoundly autistic, Michael, uh, we were going through a tough patch in our marriage. Um, it wasn't our first tough patch in our marriage, but it was uh, probably serious. Uh, we were going to pack it in and call it a day. Um, uh, I, I strayed from my marriage. I had an affair. During that time, uh, my wife was visiting uh, lawyers and realtors. Here comes this flood, and then suddenly, my wife was working at the hospital at the time, and everything that we thought um, was inescapable, you know, this routine of life, this this repetition of days, this, go to the same jobs, you know, uh, make the same commutes, they were all put aside. They were impossible. You couldn't, you couldn't do the things you used to do. And here was uh, one guy, uh, my wife was, like I said, working in the hospital, and this guy, I, I just, he sticks out of my memory, uh, came in, was, was brought into the hospital by an ambulance, and what had happened is he had a, had a heart attack, on the sidewalk, the cops came along, thought he was a drunk, and they moved him aside. Uh, and he somehow made his way to the uh, hospital. And as they were taking care of him, he just looked like a homeless guy, an old old guy. And my wife unzipped his coat, and 
they, they cut his uh, coveralls off, and underneath he had this, this suit coat and a tie and a nice shirt. And he was all dressed up because his house had flooded, and he had nowhere to go. And he thought he was going to go out and get a job and rent an apartment. And uh, this guy was in his late 70s. Huh. And, uh, yeah, and he had nowhere to go. And when he was talking to Deb, um, he said his greatest regret, he kept on saying this, is that he, his house was paid for. He was out of the floodplain, and he had a whole freezer full of meat. <laughs> that, that, or it was gone. Everything, was, his freezer full of meat, he was upset about. Uh, but, you know, and he didn't make it out of the hospital. Uh, but, and we thought, oh, you know, so these things, like, oh, let's buy a house. No, or just think 30 more years, it'll be paid for well, that's ridiculous. You know, let's let's live our lives right now. Let's these people who thought they had done everything by the book, uh, everything right, uh, had their retirement all set. A flood can come, but it can change everything. Right. So, um, and it it uh, shook us up a little bit in our marriage and in our lives. So in this case, this, uh, this happened right at the point where you were hitting this rough patch and there was the infidelity yep, and then yep. the, the flood mm-hmm. came and, um, caused both the of flood you to, coincided with it. Yeah. yeah. And caused both of you to reconsider. Right. So how do you attribute right. that? I mean, like, you know, it's like, um, you know, I, I don't mean to sound, uh, callous or anything, but it's kind of like a, a terrific metaphor, you know, and like, it's, it's great from a writerly standpoint. It's like, wow, this is really, um, amazing and sort of po- poetic. That, that it sounds these... false, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it almost does. But yeah. uh, I, you know, I'm curious. Like, do you have any kind of like supernatural uh, attribution that happens in your mind, or do you think it's just some grand coincidence? Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I don't think there really are any mistakes. I mean, if you look back on your life and you're like, oh, made a mistake there, made a mistake there, made a mistake, there aren't any. They're just things that happened, you know, and, and you make you make of them what you can. Uh, a flood is not a metaphor. You know, right. a flood, if you've ever been close to one, it's a fucking flood. It yeah. changes things. It's like the mother of metaphors. Okay, so wait. It's like the, so, the progenitor but, of metaphors. Yeah, so let's, <laughs> it's let, not a metaphor. Let's stop here for a second so people can get a physical sense of what you're talking about. This was 2008. This was in Iowa uh-huh. City. Mm-hmm. Um, like Just like incredible storms that caused the... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, forgive me for forgetting the name of the river, but uh, the river crested. Iowa River. Yep. Yeah, the Iowa River yep. crested. And then what were you looking at? Like Describe what was... You know, what was your visual uh, in your neighborhood or in your town? Well, the most, I guess, dramatic, memorable uh, vision of the flood was when uh, my son and I, we took a canoe out of our garage and drove it down uh, to the park. And we went down the sledding hill where we always sledded in the park and, and which came out at the softball fields. Well, we walked down there with our canoe and, and everything was underwater. You know, we got halfway down this hill, the sledding hill, and it was just an enormous lake where the, where the, all the baseball, the little league baseball fields had been. So we put the canoe in, and just we weren't supposed to go out there, but we did it anyway. We paddled out into the into the uh, little league baseball field. We were paddling right over the fences, infield fences, out you know, outfield fences, 
and we kind of, it was hard to get our bearings. This water was moving. I mean, this was river water moving very fast, So, but and, and it was strong. We had to paddle hard to get through, but through the park was our old neighborhood. If we followed right next to the Little League Park, so we went paddling through our old neighborhood, and most of the neighborhood, it was a, it was a working class little neighborhood. It was like a cul-de-sac type neighborhood. Uh, and the ranch homes were buried, you know, were, were buried up to the gable ends of their roofs. Uh, we had lived in a split split entry that was buried up to the second story. Uh, and, and uh, you know, just to paddle along and see everything submerged like the, in that fast moving muddy water was uh it was um strange it was eerie in a way hmm. and can you like talk cool. about can you talk about the uh the speed of it because you know that's one of the things about like when i saw katrina um you know obviously on the television or you see any flooding you know like i'm just curious to know about the speed you know like once the river crests like, how long is it before everything's underwater? Do you know? Did was it was it really quick? Oh, or was it, it was. Let's see. We were uh, sandbagging uh, on Normandy Drive. That's the the road that paralleled the Iowa River. That's where we we had lived. Uh, um, and we were sandbagging all along that that uh, near the river one night, um, and. Went home, came back down the river to visit it, and looked looked at the wall we had built. Went back home, and that very night, that the entire neighborhood it was evacuated. And what happened was uh, the water had kind of circum started to circumvent our wall and, and came through the storm drains, of course, and uh, and then just crested it. It went, I don't know, three four feet over our wall. Anyway, hmm. it was kind of. <laughs> Useless activity, even though we felt we felt that we had saved the neighborhood that night. But the next morning, you know, we learned that everybody had to be evacuated that night, and and just they had just had to go. And uh, in a lot of cases, you know, I, it, that river had flooded, and in, in I think it was ninety eight, uh, ninety eight, back around that time, and. Uh, Everyone assumed, okay, it's going to be like the last flood, but it wasn't. It was much worse, and and the, all of their belongings that they had moved up high, and they thought they'd be fine, you know, were completely underwater. And uh, um, but of course, you know, as you said, the, the, fl- the flood, this 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 thing that's nothing but real. Of course, I couldn't help. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but it. I had to, because it changed us, the flood itself, uh, it became a big part of the structure of the book. Uh, and it it becomes a metaphor, whether I want it to or not. Right. It just is. Okay, so were you, you know? like, let's dial it, like, to dial it back a little bit, um, you know, this... Uh, this struggle that you had in your marriage, like, was this something that you were trying to write about or thinking about uh, writing down anyway? And then, you know, after the flood, it, it kind of crystallized and came into higher relief? Or was this something that you didn't sit down to write about until after the flood had happened and you had already reached something of a resolution? No, I uh, I wrote day by day. 
Uh, you notice that all of all of the uh, dialogue is in present tense, most of it. Most of the scenes are in present tense. That's because I wrote them either the same day or the next day. Yeah, there's so a... as this is going on, I'm, I'm writing it. But, you know, after the flood, uh, all I have is I have, you know, thousands of pages, thousands upon thousands of pages of these little short one-hour essays. They're going to be anywhere between 2,000 words and 1,000, 2,000 words probably. Uh, and that's all I have. And one essay will be about my wife and and I will have a, a argument. And it's about this. And I connect it with something else in my mind. It becomes an essay. So it becomes like an enclosed thing. And that's that for that day. The next day I'll have I'll put together two other things and come up with an essay, which will be a closed thing. So I'm I'm sitting here with hundreds of essays, which and how and now I'm I'm I I say okay I look back on this time and I know that something has happened to me, and I say I've got to organize this stuff. I've got to figure out what happened. Why did it happen? How did it happen? And then you begin to edit. Well, now we have all these essays that are basically closed things. They can't remain that way. You kind of have to cut off the heads and feet of them and open them up and, and see where they go. And so in a lot of cases, uh, you know, uh, some, an essay that I had written uh, a week before will get moved back a week. You know, uh, I have to move, you have to change things in time to make them uh, readable so that they become a story. Because as you know, Life isn't a story. You know, life is is uh, a bramble, a goat path. There is no arc. You know, we make an arc when we write a story. Our mind makes an arc when we look back on what we've done and what's happened to us. You know, life is life. It's immediate. It, it comes. It, it, this reflection, this editing, this writing, this is all to try to make sense of it. And the way we make sense of it is we tell a story to ourselves. This is what happened. So does it, of so, course, so, well, this but, begs the question, like when you look back on, um, you know, your infidelity and what happened there, like having written this book and, and having been so um, honest about it and, and just sort of unflinching in how you assess yourself, do you understand do you understand it now? Like, do you understand why it happened better than you, you know you used to? Like, did the yep. writing did the writing Absolutely. succeed in helping Absolutely, you understand? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you you have to be brutal. You know, when you write, you don't have to be brutal when you think. You know, thoughts are are can can just dismiss themselves. You think, oh geez, you know, I cheated on my wife. Oh geez, that was pretty bad. Well. Or, gee, she didn't, my wife didn't like me, so, so I did it anyway, well, because I didn't want to be married, so I... And then you hear a song on the radio, and then you start thinking about the song, and it goes away. But when you write it down, you can't just let it go away. You know, here it is. It's on, you know, it's on the page now. Deal with it. Then you have to take it the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and it forces you to own up to it. So that... Um, so that... You move forward in your thinking about whatever it may be you're writing about, whether it's your marriage or your 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 children, uh, your relationship to your children, um, 
you know, whatever it is you're dealing with in your writing, you are forced to move forward. So does that make sense? It does, yeah. I mean, do you have, uh, can you say why it happened? And can you also, um, like now, like, articulate, you know, what you and your wife came to to uh, to repair it and to give it another go? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, can you say, oh, yeah. why, did, why mean, did you what, stray, why did you stray, first of all? Well, um, I, why, why not? Who wouldn't stray? That's a good question. It's like, uh, okay, you're, you're living with a person who doesn't like you and who you don't like, whom you don't like. You know, you you don't laugh together. You know, you, you you're you're in this sort of role as as the provider. You work, and then you come home, and then you take care of the kids, and then you and she resents you if you do this or that, you resent her, she does this or that, and it's, it, it, you know, the, the evolution of a marriage, once it begins, and, and you start blaming the other person, and you start disliking the other person, and, and thinking your life would be better without the other person, and it seems impossible that two people could love one another, because you, you your first thought is, well, she, well, she, well, she, well, she, and she's saying, well, he, well, he, well, he. So you're pointing the finger at each other. And neither one of you will stop it and step up and say, I love that person. I am going to do for that person. I'm going to make life better for that person. Not for me. What can, what, what can she do for me? That's not the question. That's not what love's about. And the same thing with your children. Oh, my children, they don't do anything for me. That's not the role of a father. The role of a father is to say, I love my children. I am going to, I am going to give this to my children. I am going to make my children's lives better because I will pay attention to them. I will talk to them. I will spend time with them. I'll read to them. And the same with a wife or any, any relationship. It's about love. It's not about what you can get. It's not about greed. It's not about accumulating uh, things. It's about giving things. Right, right. You know, just to like, I've had that conversation before, like in any relationship, whether it's a parent-child relationship or it's an intimate relationship uh, of any kind, like as soon as you start approaching it about what you can get rather than what you can give, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were in that unraveling stage. And we we couldn't stand each other, and it, it makes you question. Oh, well, yeah, we're staying together for the kids. We're shouting each other for the kids. We're drinking too much for the kids. It doesn't make sense. You know, you don't. At least we didn't. We didn't. I wasn't going to do it anymore. And that's partly what, in a way, with the coming of the flood, and my decision to stop this marriage. Stop it. I'm not going to live like this anymore. I am going to live with love in my life. And my first thought was, screw the marriage. I'm going to live with love in my my life with this other person. Because it's a lot easier. You know, it's a new thing. It's, you know, you feel like you're starting with a blank slate and it seems easier and you feel like somehow superior to everyone else because you're having this new thing. But, 
but uh, you know, um, it wasn't to be. You know, but my my wife um, amazed me. I thought I knew her. You know, uh, and she forgave me. You know, for this for for all of these years, I had been not the best husband. And and I ended up forgiving her. And I, you, that's where you got to start. That's what we did. And how, okay, so how do, you, how do you do incredible. that? How do you do that? Like, what does that look like? I, <laughs> uh, it looks like the end of the world, somehow. It looks like, like the great flood in biblical times. It looks like... Uh, I, I think of it also, like, because I'm a mechanic... I, you know, I, I, what I do is I fix equipment. I fix big equipment that makes cold water. They're called chillers. So I, I work on this big equipment and I, and I take a piece of equipment that doesn't work and I fix it. Sometimes you work on a piece of equipment that's 35 years old and it's broken and something very serious in it is broken. And when that happens, in a way, it takes all the pressure off because you can do anything with this piece of equipment. It doesn't really matter. You can you can take wild chances on this piece of equipment because it it it's screwed anyway. It's like it, you could just pull up the dump truck and throw it in there, and no one would say a word. But if you can make it work now, you're a hero. So take these wild chances to to make it work. That's what it felt like. It felt like. This thing was done. This thing was over. So that whatever we could do, these wild chances we could take uh, were easy because it was, it's like, it was like the end of it. Well, and, and so that, that, I mean, the, the irony is that it sort of sounds like, you know, it, it's old and it's done and it's finished and you can take these wild chances on it, but it, that sort of makes it sound... Uh, new in a weird way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm trying for. You know, it's like it's like the flood uh, came and destroyed everything, everyone, and then the waters receded, and there was a new beginning. You know, all these metaphors—the phoenix, the flood—all these things that die and come back again. The reaper, you know, the the time to reap and the time to sow. Things come and they go away. You know, uh, not not everything is under our control. So you then, you, so but, then you uh, guys, so then you guys, just you know, you're in this situation emotionally, and like that part of it, I totally understand. Like emotionally, you're both uh, beyond the breaking point. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. kind of like out beyond the barrier. Uh, but then, you know, when it gets down to actually real world stuff. Like, this just comes down to a conversation. Like, you know, you're both feeling similarly. Like, wow, we can just do anything here. We're in uncharted territory. But, like, did you just look at each other in the eye and say, like, I forgive you? And then, like, that was it? You know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like it's... I mean, it obviously starts with words, but then it's, uh, it's obviously got to also be followed by actions. And, uh, you know, clearly that's happened as well. Oh, yeah, well, you know, and, and that that's what happened... When, when I, I, you know, a big bone of contention between us, I wanted to get out of Iowa. I felt that she, her refusal to leave Iowa 
you know, was what imprisoned me in Iowa. And she felt that my wanting to leave Iowa was wanting to abandon everything we had worked for as a family. So we looked at it differently. And in the end, I said, okay, I'll stay here. At the same time, she said, okay, I'll leave. (laughs) So, you know, we ended up uh, leaving. And and that's, you know, that was um, telling of her to, to trust me enough and to love me enough to say, let's do it. I will do it with you. So, so that the leaving of Iowa, what, the, the, the actual leaving of Iowa, going to Massachusetts where I'd grown up, wasn't the important thing to me. The important thing to me is that we did it together, you know, just what, like we had left Massachusetts when we were young. We left Iowa when we were older together. That was, that was the decision we made. Well, and she also had the, she had the faith in you. You know what I'm saying? That was part of it too, wasn't it? I mean... Uh... Like the, she said, yeah. okay, you know, I trust you. We're gonna we're gonna make it work. You know, right, right. And rather than viewing it as an abandonment, you know, or or like some sort right. of you know abdication of responsibility. Yeah. Um, so, so and you know, and it's stupid. It's stupid. It was a stupid thing to do. If if any accountant were to look at us and say, what what in the world are you going to sell your house and you're going to move to this other place? Do you have jobs? Well, the question we always get is like. Why are you moving? And we didn't really have an answer because we couldn't say, oh, yeah, I have a job. Oh, oh, because this or that. We didn't have a reason. We just went. And it didn't make sense. It was a romantic gesture. And we did it. And, you know, it was the best year of our lives. That We had a great time in Massachusetts. We went walking on the beach almost every day. We had Italian subs at little Italian markets. We... Went to see maddening movies. We had a great time. It was uh, wonderful. And, and uh, that's it. Well, well and, okay, so I'm curious to know because this is something that I wrestle with. I think a lot of people wrestle with where they're sitting around trying to figure out where to live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my wife and I have this conversation like, oh, should we be here? Is this the, pl- is this the right place for us? Should we go uh, somewhere else? Yep. You know, I think it's very, mm-hmm. very common. Do you know why? I mean, I'm sure you know why, but like, uh, can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to leave Iowa? What was it? Like, you know, did you just have wanderlust? You just wanted to try something new? Um, you know, what was? I, wa- I, I, I wanted, um, I wanted Deb to want to go with me. You know, when we got to Massachusetts, yes, Massachusetts is wonderful. Yes, it's great. It's also very expensive. The, the traffic's also horrible. Uh, you know, for grocery stores, you have a choice between Whole Foods and Costco, you know, with not much in between. Uh, there's a lot of drawbacks and a lot of wonderful things, but there's a lot of drawbacks and a lot of wonderful things about Iowa, too. I don't, you know, we, we had this push-pull we had. It was, I think, me saying, come with me, and she saying, fuck you. <laughs> I'm not going with you. And then me saying, fuck you, because you're not going with me. So that, that's the way it ended up. Uh, but when we both said, I said, come with me. And she said, I'll go with you. And at the same time, I was saying, I'll stay with you. And she, then she said, I'll go. So it was a very strange and beautiful thing. And we went. And now we're back in Iowa. Why? Because.
because we're not independently wealthy. You know, we couldn't. Uh, I was teaching college. We're like, uh, I think I figured it out if I taught five courses per semester, I'd make something like 23000 a year. And that didn't really, as an adjunct, right. doesn't work. No insurance, really, other than than uh, the Massachusetts insurance. Right. It's a, it's a tough road to hoe, man, out there. And and the union, 537, where I, where I went to union school and I spent 11 years in the union there, they had 300 guys on the bench. Jesus. And they basically said, go fly a kite. Uh, so it just, it, it's, it's tough. And, and you know, um, came back to Iowa. Iowa's beautiful. I love Iowa. It's great. It's just that I had to, uh, there's a certain, you know, there's that, that line in life between, between, um, sort of happiness and contentment, which is like saying, I want what I have and, and a desire, which is kind of a want for something you don't have, you know, and they're both, of course, very basic motivators in our lives. You know, that desire, what do I do? You know, you can't say, I, I don't want any desire in my life. I, I don't want to say that, but there's something to be said for wanting what you have to, you know, there's a, there's a, strength in it you know and then there then when something comes along you can want the next thing that you have you know when when your house floods or when you move away or when when the next big change your spouse dies god forbid you know um you will move on and 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 it'll be different and uh you know you need strength to to want what you have then and also have a desire to move ahead so it's this is what I wrestled with in this book and in life, you know. Well, yeah, I was going to say because, like, if you go back into your, you know, your earlier life before you guys even got married, I mean, like, the root of your relationship is in this big uh, cross-country motorcycle trip. I mean, you know, you you huh? you had, you know, kind of like an uh, on-the-road fantasy for how you were going to live your life. You know, you were going to be this. Work, man. Yeah, you were never going to settle. You were going to continue to uh, to move around, and you were going to live life on kind of like the bleeding edge, and then. You met Deb, and you guys started traveling, and then next thing you know, uh, you're in Iowa, right? I mean, yeah, that's kind of yes. the, the truncated version, but that's what happened. And then you have a kid, that's and then, exactly what happened. And then you have, and and you know what? That's an, it's interesting to say because you come from the Northeast, and you're you know you're in Massachusetts, and then you're driving across the country, checking out all these different places, and you fall in love with Iowa. Like that is not something that I think most people would expect. Uh, or it's not something it's not something you hear a ton about, you know. People from the coast falling in love with the middle of the country, uh, especially someplace you know that's like uh, most people associate with like cornfields and like field of dreams or whatever, you know. Yeah, it, it's so beautiful, though it is. It's so beautiful, it, it, but you know, I've been across the country a few times in, in my youth on motorcycles, and we'll go again. I hope uh, we're thinking about getting a. Um, if we can afford it, we want to get a motorcycle with a sidecar for Mike. Um, but when you go across the country, have you have you done a lot of traveling across the country? Yeah, I mean, I've I've, I've, dri- I've driven across the country a few, you know, several times. Yeah, I mean, and every every part of the country is so beautiful. I mean, 
coming into Nevada for the first time, and no one thinks that Nevada is beautiful. But when you go through these little little carnival-looking towns with the peeling paint and they're so forsaken, it, it, it's just like the, the, it's the death of a dream. It's so beautiful, and the desert is so beautiful, and the salt flats are beautiful. It's a beautiful country, and it's it's hard not to fall in love with every part of it when you go across it. I mean, when I came into California, I'm like, this this is the land of milk and honey. I mean, after going through the rest of the country, and then you come to this, you could just take a magic marker and draw a line between California and the rest of the country and, and say, this is it right here. It's it's just, it has everything. Um but, you know, it's hard not to fall in love with every part. Deb and I, we drove down to Florida last winter. We're like, everyone hates Florida. Not everyone. But, uh, I don't know. I think it's awesome. We, we were down in, uh, um, down in, uh, in, uh, down around Orlando. And then we went, um, toward the bay. And, you know, little Dunkin' Donuts, little ranch homes, little sort of funky little bars, and the ocean. What's not to like? And it's cheap. Right. Like, oh, let's, let's live here. This would be awesome. But we, we do that everywhere. We could go to Virginia and do it. We could go to North Carolina and do it. Well, we couldn't. We could go to uh, North Dakota and do it. Maybe not. Maybe not. I <laughs> no, I, I do that, too. Like, when my, my wife and I go traveling, like, we almost always, like, on the first day in some new town, we'll immediately yes, we start imagining. That's right. We start imagining our lives there. Like, what? Are we, yeah, we can live that's here. Right. You know, it's just that's a, right. That's what happens. And what's so funny is when we first moved to Iowa, Deb and I, we we were just totally pretending. We, I, you know, I was living in Cambridge. I got my truck ripped off like three times the summer I left, and uh, then living in this little rent control apartment. Uh, you know, and we were pretending to be country people. We got this place out in the country. We got jobs at a hardware store. I was putting in water heaters for this old guy that owned the hardware store. We'd go out to eat at the sale barn where they where they sell cattle and, and uh, hogs and have this conversations with these farmers. We did not belong, but it was so fun to pretend we did. And they knew we, you know, they, we'll take one look at us. They knew we didn't belong, but it was so cool. It was pretend until we had that first kid. And then and the pretending kind of, Stopped. Well, okay, yeah, because that's an interesting. Uh, that's another interesting component of your story, you know, is that you have four children, and Michael is severely autistic, and, um, you know, you, you obviously can't, uh, you know, and I know you never would. You don't lay the blame on children for any troubles that you have in in life or in a marriage. But like when you have a child who's uh, severely autistic, when you have a child, period. But then you have a child who requires the kind of care that Michael requires. Um, that would put stress on anyone, you know, uh, it's not easy. And, um, I don't know that part of the book, especially cause I'm a new parent. Like I just found myself sort of awed by all that you guys have on your plate as parents. Like, how do you deal with all that? And can you also, can you describe Michael's condition so that uh, my listeners can understand like what it's like, you know, for you guys and for him? Uh, yeah, my, Mike was born with uh, tuberous sclerosis. And that's a disease where uh, the child grows tumors or tumors in different organs of his body, uh, brain, um, heart. Uh, he can grow them in kidneys, uh, uh, you know, all over his body. And these tumors are generally not malignant. They're they're uh, just these little little tumors 
in in Mike's case, in, in, uh, he he is severely autistic, and some doctors say he's severely mentally retarded. Uh, but of course, you know, um, these these diagnoses are are without physical evidence. Uh, that's not that's not the right way to put it. But if, if someone's autistic, basically, they, they hand out this diagnosis. And what it means is they are autistic because they behave this way. Therefore, they're autistic. You know what I mean? That, that's like saying that car is rolling down the highway, and therefore we're going to say that that car is rolling down the highway. It doesn't tell you a freaking thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that car is rolling down the highway because it has tires with air in it and it has a, a gas engine with reciprocating pistons and blah, blah, blah. This is why the car is rolling down the highway. They don't know why this child is autistic. They don't know what autism is. So as a mechanic, if I went to a customer and said, this piece of equipment is broken because it's broken, and we're going to call it a broken piece of equipment, that's that's what I got for you. They're going to say, get the fuck out of here. You know, send someone over who can fix it. Well, no one can fix Mike, and no one can tell us why exactly. Uh, he's autistic, but what it entails, in Mike's case, is... Uh, uh, a, a lot of trouble communicating. He can't really talk. He has these ticks. Uh, hit Mike's uh, Mike when he gets revved up. He screams a lot. He's like a cawing, kind of like a seabird noise. Uh, and he likes to wiggle belts or wiggle little pieces of string. He, he uh, um, we have to bathe him and dress him and. Uh, he he's, has a hard life, you know, to live like that. And I, I know that he understands every word we say. He just he, he just has a hard... It's as though there, there's this, this static between him and us, and we can't breach it, and he can't breach it. But um, but he's difficult, you know. He has a... He, for a while there, it's still going on. He has a fascination with his own feces, uh, which ends up all over the place, which is troublesome. Huh. Uh, you know, he he uh, used to run away. He used to just he used to escape the house and just go, and you couldn't find him. And he wasn't like a normal kid. He, where would a kid run? Well, he'd go to the park. Oh, that that kid, he just loved the swing set. He, Mike would Mike would go and get in someone's car that was parked at a stoplight. He'd just go. He'd go in places that you would never imagine a kid would go. It's like your heart stops when you look around. You're like, where's Mike? He's gone. But luckily, thank God, he stopped doing that, at least for now. But he's, he's, he requires a lot of attention. And, and all of this attention uh, takes away from attention that you could pay to your other children or attention that you could pay to your wife or husband. I, you know, I can't even imagine. I can't even, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, it's constant. I mean, is there anything, like, first of all, how old is he now? Like, is he... 14. Okay, and he's a big kid, too. 14. I remember you describing him as like, he's, he's you said he's going to be a big oh, he's man. A, he's a big kid. Yeah, he's going to be bigger than I am. I'm I'm six one, about 200. He's going to be probably a little tall, taller than I am. I know damn well he's going to be heavier than I am because his shoulders are much broader. He's just bigger boned than I am. Yeah. So, so it's going to be tough. 
So do you have, I mean, do you have like downtime with him where he's just kind of like hanging out quietly doing something and you don't have to attend to him or is, do you always have to, attend? um, uh, well, he'll have, he'll have batches of seizures lately. So what'll happen is, uh, you and they're all grandmas now. So he'll have a seizure. We'll be going to bed and we hear this, this noise in the other room. It'll be, it'll sound like a guy is trying to lift weights and, he, and, and he's got too much weight. He can't lift it. That's what the beginning of the seizure sounds like. It's just, it's grating. And, and you rush to get to him because what he does, he'll start to stand up and then he falls down. So if you've got to get to him before he stands up and falls down to hold on to him to make sure he doesn't hurt himself. Uh, and just, you hold him until the seizure's done. And he may have 20 seizures in a night. And we were living with that for a while. And then we got some medication. Now, he won't take medication orally. Uh, so it's it's like this suppository type thing, uh, like a big uh, uh, needle, sort of, except it's not a needle. And you put it in the system that way, and and we drug him up, to, and that stops the seizures. It stops the cycle of seizures for the night, and then he will be groggy for about two days. So he'll be quiet. And sometimes he becomes lucid when he's on this, these drugs. Uh, he he um, uh, he'll he'll say things like, "I want pizza, please." And a lot of times he'll say things like that. He doesn't mean it. He'll say, "I want pizza, please," and you give him pizza, and he'll be really pissed off because he didn't mean that. Sometimes he comes in these stages where after the seizures, it's like the seizures reboot his mind and he'll be able to talk. But they'll say, I want pizza, please. And that's what he wants. And you give him pizza and he's happy. Or I want to watch Blue's Clues, please. And you will put on Blue's Clues and he's happy. You're like, hey, he's actually talking. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And then and then his brain, uh, you know, what leads up to these seizures is just the irregular brain activity, which is caused by Mike's. Uh, by, by the tumors in his brain and this, these choppy signals and they build, 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 build until you seize. But he's always in a state of irregular brain activity. Wow. Now, and they build, it build, it'll build, it'll build, it'll build. He'll get more and more louder and louder. He'll do more and more screaming and be more and more pain in the ass until he has a group of seizures again. Then he'll be quiet. So that's the way it goes. It's, it's, it comes in waves. Cool. But, uh, well, so how did so how did you write a book? You know, like most people battle to write a book, you know, with a normal set of responsibilities, uh, you know, whatever that is in front of them. But with this, with all the demands that you have, uh, family wise, and with your your day job and whatever, like, uh, you know, when when it comes to uh, your memoir, how did you get it done? Well, you notice it's not a very big book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't write a thousand page book. I can't. Uh, the, the way we did it, like I said, this is the one hour a day. Go up to your computer and do it. You gotta do it. You can't sit around messing up, messing around, screwing off. You just do it. And yeah. that's the way you get it on the page. And, uh, you know, it's, it's affected, you know, my work adversely. I, you know, I can't be as good a mechanic as I could be 
because I spend too much time writing, but but writing is uh, has become very important to me. Well, and then you, you went know, to I, did you go to you went to the Iowa Writers Workshop? Is that correct? Well, you can't call it the workshop though, because uh, it's nonfiction. They get very prickly about that. Oh, okay. Okay. So, yeah, because the fiction and poets they're the workshop. Okay. The nonfiction they call it the nonfiction program, but it's the same thing. It's it's a workshop. So you go three years. You you know you you present your little essays to a group of people and they beat the shit out of you for three years and then you're done. Wow. So and it took it takes you a while. Have you ever taken workshop courses? Oh sure, yeah, I got my MFA, so I've been through the been through Oh, you went through it. You went through it. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you better put your armor on, man. Is it you know, even even if they like it. Sometimes you bring in an essay, oh they love it. They went crazy. They loved it. But you still can't frickin' write when you're done, because then you're thinking, "Man, I'm really good. I'm I'm like a genius. I'm <laughs> I'm I, I can really write." And then you, you can't write. And if everyone hates it, you go through the same thing. You can't write. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm not reading any reviews because I'm like, you know, I've been through that. I, uh, I'm not going to read any reviews. Well, it, yeah, it, it can't uh, help me. Let's talk about this because, like, that's the part of the process that's interesting, especially living in. Um, a relatively small town and and being this honest about this personal uh this kind of personal information and, and family stuff like what has the response been and I mean have you heard anything about reviews and like do you have any sense of what friends and people in town are thinking and do you know what I'm saying like is oh, there any of that or is, I guess uh, well no, it's it's very it, it's not you know i I haven't given out many books I mean I haven't had books to give out. The galleys were sent out, like, I don't know, about 150 galleys or whatever were sent out to magazines and newspapers, whatever. Uh, but as far as feedback, uh, there's, uh, I have this friend who tuned me in to Goodreads, which I started looking at, and some of these people who got these galleys were going on Goodreads and posting this or that about it. This dude is addicted to checking out. He just came out with a book not long ago. He's addicted to checking out how his book's doing. So he's like, yeah, you've got to go on book reads. Check it out. So I start going on there. I'm like, oh, wow. I, someone gave me five stars. Look, someone gave me a great review. Oh, look, someone gave me two stars. Why don't I have soul? Two stars. <laughs> they get upset. It's like, it's insane yeah. to go on there and do that. So I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to Goodreads. So I really don't know what, what the response has been. I know some people really don't like it and some people really like it. That's what I know. I think that's the way it's going to be. It's not like, it's not like, uh, it's not like reading a, you know, a spy book and saying it was pretty good. You know, it was kind of, there were twists and turns and that, that spy really killed a lot of people and then he's pretty cool. And then I'm going to read the next one. It was all right. It was, wasn't great, but this this book isn't like that. It's, it, you can't put it really in a category. I think I think this book is going to piss a lot of people off because wow. I think a lot of people uh, I think a lot of people think that this inf- this type of information should not be heard. You don't you don't talk about this stuff. Okay, and then what what do you I, say to that? What's your response to that? I mean, do you have one? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't talked. I've spoken about it, but my response is. 
in my own mind to myself, like, okay, I have an idea. I am going to live a life, and I'm not going to talk to anybody about it, and then I'll die. That's awesome. That'll be great, because then I'll be dead, and then I wouldn't have talked to anybody about it. But you know what? These, these, uh, um, uh, um, circumstances I'm in with with the special needs kid, the circumstances I've been in with my marriage, there are other people who are in these same circumstances. And being a parent of a special needs child is an isolating thing because no one knows what it's like. I don't care if you bring your kid to a picnic and your kid's screaming and squats down, takes a poop next to people and is just uh, hell on earth. They still don't know what it's like to do every day, and they never will know. But if other people who have special needs kids like my kid can read this book, they know they're not alone. You know, if other people, parents of special needs children who are having so much trouble, the divorce rate is something like 80 or 90% among parents of special needs children. If they can read this book and say, look, these this couple, they go through troubles just like we we go through troubles. There's something comforting in knowing that you're not alone in the world, you know, in that moment of grief or failure or, or that moment of of uh, abject humiliation or guilt or whatever it is you may be feeling. You're not alone, you know. I'm, I'm going through it. I'm here too. Right. So there's, I think there's value in it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think so too. I, I, that's the way that, that, I, that I fall as well. Uh, what about your wife? I mean, she's obviously read the book. Mm-hmm. What does she think? Yeah. Because like that's like I, that's one of the things that kept recurring to me is like she's pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, like not only does she come off that way on the page, but uh, just the fact that you know you have this space to write and that she's comfortable. I mean, clearly is comfortable uh, with this level of, of candor and everything else. Like, what's her response? And like, how does that how does that work? Oh well, uh, I broke her in slowly. <laughs> I, I've been I've been writing about her forever. Yeah. So you know, I used to write about her and then bring her into the uh, the workshops, and uh, you know, it caused a lot of fights. And you know, talk about fights. How about try and try to sometime have an argument with your wife. Go and write down everything both you said, and then read it back to her <laughs> and see. See how that goes. That won't go well because she'll be like, "That's bullshit." I never said that. You're like, "Yes, you did." No, I did. So that's what I've done. So I've done this for years, and and uh, and she's, you know, I've gotten better at writing about my wife, uh, even handed. You know, I, I don't try to make her into a, a, a Mother Mary. I don't try to to make her into the horror Babylon. I I try to make her the way she is. I try to be fair, and I try to treat myself the same way. And, you know, writing about things fairly, about arguments and everything else, as fair as you can, trying to look at it for what it is rather than what you want it to be or what you think it should be, it, it has helped us too. It, that has helped our relationship, to be able to, in the middle of an argument, to be able to see it with a little bit of distance. Um, see the transcript. It helped us. Yeah, that's right. Read the transcripts, Deb. You can see clearly I won this argument, Deb. <laughs> clearly. That's right. Oh, my God. Just so, read it. It's right here. So did she... Oh, so, yeah, but she's, she's a little nervous. She's she's a little nervous. And, and, you know, I don't look at Goodreads, but someone, she told me, it was kind of a slap in her face. She's like, 
someone hated me on Goodreads. Like, oh, I really like the book. I really like the guy. But that wife's a bitch. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> she goes, this person said, I hope I'm never a wife like her or something like that. And she's like, oh, what? Yeah. So, you know, we don't know what it's going to be like. We're a little bit nervous, of course, but because, you know, you don't want people to hate you. Right. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's just the, nat- just gotta, it's the nature of putting creative yeah. creative work out into the world. Not everyone. It's not going to be We just got to suck it up. That's right. Got to suck it up. Tighten their belt buckles and just go, okay, let's go because it's too late now. Well, so now. what about the, uh, yeah, what, and what about the sales process? Like, well, this all happened, what, about a year ago? Is that correct, time frame? Two years. Two years. Okay. So you wrote the book mm-hmm. in it when you were still in Iowa, and then you have an agent, and the agent took it out. Is that how it went? Or Yeah. Um, no, what happened was um, I got a piece in, uh, in the Modern Love section of the New York Times, the Sunday Modern Love section. Uh Dan Jones liked one of my essays. He put it in. So that one in there was about Mike. It was like the first essay I'd ever written about Michael because uh, I had a long time. I had a hard time addressing it on the page uh, without because I was afraid I'd sound like a whiner because I did feel sorry for myself. So they, you, you don't want to sound like that. I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to be one of those guys. I'm not going to write about Mike. Oh, poor me, poor me. But finally, I started dealing with it on the page and that was one of the first ones I wrote and he took it and after that I got I heard from a few different agents so I flew to New York got an agent I picked one and and oh I'm so happy I have an agent oh and she says okay what do you got I'm like oh I have fucking thousands of pages look at all these essays I have she's like no I mean what do you got for a book nothing (laughs) I have a book what do you mean a book uh, yeah, I need a book to sell. I'm not going to sell a bunch of essays. You're not going to sell essays. So I'm like, okay, I better, better write a book. So then I had, I had two or three ideas of books to write, but the obvious one was this flood thing. Like I'm going to, something happened here. Something happened. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. So I ended up giving her two real rough drafts, and the flood, flood one, very dark. Very graphic, angry, cold, brutal, and I look like an asshole uh, in it. I'm like, she's going to hate this thing. Not only is she going to hate this this sort of rough draft, she's going to hate me for writing it, and she's going to drop me. But screw it. I'm going to give it to her. I gave her that one, and I gave her another one that was sort of like, kind of like, it was about uh, rainbows and... uh and pixies and fairy dust and the relationship Michael and I had, which was so wonderful. And oh my God, she'll like that one. She'll hate this other one. But she ended up loving the one that I thought she'd hate and hating the one I thought she'd love. And I was relieved because I I don't think I could have written, gone ahead and written the other one. So she wanted to hear about this brutal graphic uh, flood business. So I took my gloves off and dove in, and I did it. And uh, I'm better for it. And I hope uh, I hope it does some good. How much? How long did it take you to write it? Uh, well, yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard to say. I mean, because the writing of it, like I said, day to day. So the whole thing lasted a month. 
maybe. You know, and then you get the later parts. That was, well, that was a year and a half later. But that was just little snippets later on in it. But, you know, the meat, the meat of it was like a month. So it took me a month. But it took me, you know, years to get it to the stage where you could call it a book. Mm-hmm. Like, to, it's like, it was like a bunch of puzzle pieces. And then, you know, and, and they... Uh, I was just going to say, and then you went, and then she went out with it when it was finally done, and was the sales process relatively quick, or did it uh, did it stretch out? Well, for a while? the first one, it, it's amazing. The, the first time she sent it out, everyone rejected it. She sent it to all the big houses, you know, uh, Penguin and, and Knopf and uh, Viking and all these different uh, houses, uh, uh, Simon Schuster, different branches of Simon Schuster, and and uh, no one wanted it. But we got a lot of people that said, that said, we want to see the next draft. So I, I just worked for another year, I don't know, about a year, just busting my ass on this thing. And, and it's amazing how, like, one sentence can turn a reader against you. Mm-hmm. If you. If you come across as a certain way, this reader will attribute every negative thing they can to you for the rest of the book. It's, it's like walking a tightrope, especially if you as the author are the same person as the, the narrator. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, that's you. Yeah, it's like it's so, a, a tightrope. So, like, yeah, so what do you, you can't be braggadocious. You can't be feeling sorry for yourself. You can't, be, you can't lie. That's a big one mm-hmm. because everyone will know. It's like it's almost like being at a party. If you're talking to a guy at a party and they start talking about, about themselves and they don't give you time to say a word, you're going to hate that person. Right. You can't be that person on the page either. If you get this person, he's the hero of every story he tells, you're going to hate that person. Who are you going to like? Well, they have to bring something to the table. They have to bring you in. They have to bring you into the conversation in a way that makes you interested, that makes you want to contribute you know, and that's what it was like trying to write this thing and not put everyone off because they can be put off with a sentence mm. for the rest of the book and then you're screwed. So it was, it was, uh, and, and, and on the other hand, you, you cannot write a, an entire book for someone else. You can't say they will like this. Look at this. Everyone's going to really like me. You can't, it, it, you have to actually be, <laughs> be this person that's not repugnant to everyone. You have to be that person because you can't fake it. So it's a real strange thing writing this writing this memoir. Yeah, I can only imagine. And so, you know, when you finally got it through that second draft, then then it sold, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, then it sold. Uh, a couple different publishing houses wanted it, and uh, Scribner got it. Thank God, because uh, Whitney Frick is my editor. She's amazing. And Lauren Laval is uh, my publicist. She's incredible. And I just feel so lucky and blessed to have uh, Scribner uh, be taking care of me right now. And then uh, last question. Uh, I'm curious to know about your, 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 your other kids. Like, you know, aside from Michael, have any of them read it or are you keeping it from them? I mean, it presents an interesting dilemma, I would imagine, about when to let them read it or if to let them read it, depending on their ages. Well, my other kids don't matter. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good uh, point. And that's something I've struggled with too. But it was fairly easy to uh, 
overcome it. First of all, Mike can't read it, never will. Uh, the boys and Lucy, the boys, my oldest son now is Sam, he's 19. This was four years ago, all this stuff happened. So I got Sam 19, William 17, almost 18. Uh, Lucy is the hard one. She's 14, Michael's twin sister. Uh, to the boys, I say, hey, guys, I wrote this book. I don't think I want you to read it. Why not? I said, okay, do you want to read about your mom and me having sex? No. Forget <laughs> it. Don't want to read it. I'm like, there. That was simple. Lucy, on the other hand, that didn't work. You know, uh, but, you know, the minute we got, the minute, she's sneaky. The minute we got a galley in the house, she snuck it and was reading through it. And, and, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to stop her from it. And, uh, but it is what it is. You know, I, I, I try not to, uh, be too big of a hypocrite with my kids or anybody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, the truth ultimately wins out, you know, and if you have the courage to lay yourself bare like that, I, I think that it might not always be easy for people to uh read you know it's not it's not always emotionally comfortable but ultimately um it's respectable and it's a heck of a book and uh you know i wish you all the best with it and i i thank you for uh taking the time to come talk with me thanks man and uh thanks for having me okay folks there you go that's the program that's joe blair for the hour his book once again is called by the iowa sea it is a memoir it is available now from scribner go get yourself a copy if you want to find Joe on the web, he's at joeblairwriter.com, and he's also got a Facebook page. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. You can follow this program on the Twitter, at OtherPeoplePod. It also has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Don't forget to check out the nervousbreakdown.com and follow it on the Twitter, at TNBTweets. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Heck of a conversation. Thank you for tuning in. I actually have to get going. I have to go take care of my daughter and tend to my domestic situation. Uh, I'm going to put on some cologne, perhaps some Old Spice aftershave lotion, and I'm going to fulfill the role of the patriarch. How does that sound? Are you with me? Do you support me in my endeavor? Uh, Please remember to go for a long drive, or possibly two. Please remember to take the long way home, or better yet, walk, or ride your bike, or uh, ride a scooter. But if you do that, please don't hit a tree, and please do wear a helmet. Uh, I hope you're doing well. I will be back again soon with another episode, another writer-to-writer interaction, another odd and meandering conversation about whatever materializes in the moment. Uh, thank you to Sebastian Younger. Thanks to Drakkar Noir. And thank you to Kane from Kung Fu. Just let it happen. Let the moment happen, people. Do not stand in the way. <laughs>